Well, good morning, Crestwick. Thank you for tuning in this morning. We are grateful to be able to meet uh, even in this way, even though it's not normal and it's not the way that we like. And we've said this over and over and over again. Uh, just a couple of things to make you aware of. Uh, we're back. We're back in the office. Um, myself, Steph, Sam, um, we, everybody's back in. We uh, met this past week. And in, in order to figure out uh, what the next steps are moving forward with services and what things are going to look like, and just a couple of things to make you aware of in that regard. Um, we are planning on having a live stream service January 17th. So one week from today, we will be having a live stream service. Under lockdown uh, regulations, uh, we can have 10 people in the service and the vast majority of those uh, will be myself and the others who will be putting the service together. Um, we did, in Stephanie's email, we did uh, want to make you aware that if, if you are somebody uh, who feels like you really, really need to come to a service, you need to see people, even though it's not going to be a normal service, even what our normal normal uh, isn't anymore. Um, we want you to make us aware so that we can fit you in and squeeze you into our 10. Um, so that's for the 17th. We will have a live stream service. It will be at 1030 like we normally live stream and um, we will go from there. The following week, the 24th, um, we are prepared and ready if the lockdown ends on the 23rd as uh, is scheduled, it was scheduled for four weeks. Um, if on the 24th there is no lockdown, we are prepared to have our normal service or what has been our new norm. To have um, a, re a regular service with, with all of you uh, with us together and uh, we are prepared for that. We are also prepared for, as we never quite know how these things will go, if the lockdown is extended, we are prepared to continue to do live stream services. So Lord willing, this is the last time we will be seeing each other in this way, the last time we will be doing videos. The Christmas holidays was a little difficult to pull together some live stream stuff. But um, moving forward, we will be doing live stream and live stream only, whether with 10 people or 100 people or Lord willing, we will get back to normal and have uh, as many of you gather with us as possible. Um, we are ready for that and we are prepared for that. One other thing, um, Chris has started uh, this new year. Chris McCartney started on staff with us. He is our new building facility um, manager, overseer, caretaker uh, individual. We are glad and excited to have him on board. We've been uh, just enjoying getting to know him the past uh, week. He's already fitting in very well, making fun of uh, myself. And I think that's Stephanie's influence. Um, yeah, we're excited to have him on board. He's already taken initiative in so many different ways and we're excited to have him on board. We haven't scared him away, so we take that as a good sign. This morning, I'd like to direct your attention to uh, the Gospel according to Mark. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to Mark chapter 1. Um, Stephanie was correct. I'm going to be working through uh, Mark's Gospel over the next couple of weeks and months as the Lord directs. Um, one thing I do want to just point out about as I read this morning, um, I will be preaching from the ESV this morning. Normally I preach from the NIV. That's what Steve preached from. That's what's been just commonly used here at Crestwick. And uh, reason being that I will be preaching from the ESV this morning is because um, Candace bought me a new Bible. Nine years ago, nine years ago at Christmas, Candace bought me the Bible that I've been using for the past nine years, and it was an NIV 2011. This year she bought me this brand new Bible, this nice leather Bible. It's got, um, it's very big and it's nice. It stays open and flat very well. It's got nice big letters for me to read. And um, so it would be a shame, I thought, to not use the gift that she had given me and to not use this nice, uh, well-constructed Bible. So I'll be preaching from the ESV and hopefully that doesn't ruffle too many feathers 
uh, for too many people. So hopefully by now you found the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, verse 1 down to the end of verse 15. Mark, um, the gospel of Mark is written um, by Mark. Most people say it's um, a collection of Mark's um, writings taken from the Apostle Peter, that he wrote it um, in close connection with Peter, and it's Peter's testimony that he's actually writing down. Um, Mark is writing likely in Rome to Roman believers who don't know much about Jewish customs. They're unfamiliar with uh, Judaism and, and, and how it, as a religion, as a society, as, um, as people, how it functioned and how it was put together. And so he writes to believers who are genuine believers, Gentile believers, who may not know everything about the Old Testament that they need to know. And his main point in writing is who is Jesus and what did he teach? Who is this person that we are now following, this person that we are now disciples of? And what did he teach? What did he instruct his followers to live out and believe? And he also, um, he writes about our response. What is our response to this individual? Because we are disciples. Discipleship is a big theme in Mark. What does it mean to follow? What does it mean to live after? Discipleship, following Jesus, is not just living and acting a certain way. It's, it is that. But it's giving our entire lives devotion to a person, not just a way of living. And so this is what Mark is writing about. And um, let's, let's read verses 1 through 15 of Mark chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we see in verse 1 is Mark really setting the tone, setting the theme, giving us the overall topic of his gospel account. What is the point? Who is he talking about? What is he talking about? As we already discussed, it's, it's talking about Jesus. He's setting the theme of Jesus and who is Jesus and what did, he che- what did he teach? Mark gives us that topic right off the bat. There's no mystery here. We're not trying to figure out some secret motive that, that Mark has. 
He wants people to know that this is all about Jesus. What you read right here, from here on in, is about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he did. It's the beginning of the gospel. It's the beginning of the good news. You're going to want to pay attention. Good news um, was more than just uh, something that sounded exciting. Good news gospel was actually, it was tied in very closely with um, with Rome, with Caesar. The birth of Caesar was marked as good news for the Roman Empire. There was the good news that was proclaimed in the Old Testament that the Jews were looking for, the coming one, the Messiah, the anointed one. They were ready and waiting for him. And the good news has now appeared, not in Rome, not in Caesar, but in Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you paying attention? Are you ready for this? Are you, are you actively paying attention to what Mark is about to say about Jesus Christ? The gospel is more than just a set of truths or beliefs. It is that. The gospel is a set of truths. There is truth found in the gospel and nowhere else. It is a set of beliefs. We are called to repent and believe, believe certain things. But it is more than that. It is the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just a religious system. It is religion. Christianity is a religion. Yes, it's a relationship, but it is a religion. But it is more than that. So much more because it is rooted and founded in the person of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This phrase actually, it bookends um, the beginning and end of Mark's account. We hear now Jesus proclaimed from, um, from Mark's vantage point, Jesus is the Son of God. And then we read at the end in chapter 15, Jesus hanging on the cross, right at the moment where he gives up his spirit, the Roman soldier standing next to him says, surely this man was the son of God. That theme, those bookends help us understand that what is Mark doing? He's helping draw our attention to the fact that Jesus Christ displayed in these different ways as we will get to as we go through the book of Mark, Jesus is the son of God. That's a big theme. That's a big important thing. This book is not just a biography. It's not not like the other gospel accounts. Matthew and Luke are written in a biographical sense. They give you the genealogy. They give you a sense of the background of who Jesus was, and it's a telling of the events that took place around him. Mark gets into that a little bit. John is more of a theological book. It's written from a theological perspective. Um, Mark's account, it's good news. It's in very much the same way that you would relate good news to somebody else. Let me tell you about something that is massively impactful for you. We think of the coronavirus, the pandemic. It will be good news when on that day we can tell each other, did you hear the good news? Corona's gone. Or did you hear the good news? Uh, The pandemic's over. Whatever it may be, that is indeed good news that we want to share with anyone and everyone This, far more importantly, is not just about our physical state and our physical standing here in this world. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the eternal state of our souls. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to pay attention. It is more than a book. It is a theology of Christ and who he is. It's Christology. It's explaining who he is and what he did. And we need to pay attention. So what I've done through verses uh, 2 through 8... Verses 9 through 13 and verses 14 through 16, I broke down into three sections. And I actually gave them uh, titles, names to help us remember them. They all begin with P. Verses 2 through 8, 
we see the preparation for Jesus, preparing for Jesus. Verses 9 through 13, the proofing of Jesus. And I'll explain what I mean when we get to that. And verses 14 through 15, the preaching of Jesus. Preparing for Jesus, proofing of Jesus, and the preaching of Jesus. Let's look in verses 2 through 8 first. Preparing for Jesus. We are prepared for Jesus. We're prepared for this message primarily by God. God himself prepares his people, prepares the world to hear the message of Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 2 through 3, that there is a special preparation prepared by God through Old Testament prophecy. The prophets came and spoke for God. They were the mouthpieces of God to bring God's message to the people. And here's what we see. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. The one coming stands in continuity with what the Lord is doing. John, as we will see in a few moments, he's going to talk about the one coming after him. And what John does and what this this, uh, Old Testament prophecy does, when Mark brings these two together, he says that what John's message, coming from God as a prophet, John's message and the message that comes from the Old Testament, from the scriptures, they, they go together. They are not disconnected. They are intricately entwined together so that what God spoke about through his prophet Isaiah, through multiple other prophets, through Moses, through Malachi, through all these other individuals, that message is being continued and fulfilled in the one who is coming, the one that John is talking about. It is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus stands in continuity with what the Lord is doing, ultimately the salvation of his people. That's what his people were waiting for. That's what the people of God have been longing for in the Messiah, the anointed one to come and to bring salvation to God's people. John is the forerunner um, for Jesus in the same way that Elijah, which this passage, and as we'll see in verses 4 through 8, John is tied together with Elijah's role. Elijah was the forerunner for God himself. Elijah was the forerunner, the spokesman, not just for God, but he paved the way for God himself to come and be and speak into the lives of his people. John is associated with Elijah in his role. And we'll see that in the pictures of of, of who John is and what he looked like and, and his actual role. But that has massive implications for the one who comes after. Because if Elijah was paving the way for the Lord, and John, who is associated with Elijah is paving the way for Jesus. That has massive implications for who Jesus is. We've already been told in verse 1 that he is the Son of God. What we're being told is that that Son of God title, being tied with this um, Elijah, John, and Jesus, Jesus is actually being associated with the Lord himself, with Yahweh. We are being told that Jesus, the Son of God, is God himself. We have in Matthew and Luke the incarnation. We've just come through Christmas and what that means and what that represents and what that is for us as believers. Mark just cuts to the chase and he says, Jesus, when he shows up on the scene, we know that this is Yahweh, the Lord himself come in the flesh. John is the forerunner for Jesus, just as Elijah is the forerunner for God himself. And we are being communicated, we are being told, even in the first two verses, three verses, that the one who is coming, the one that this is all about, is the Lord himself. So, in being prepared for Jesus, we need to be prepared to understand and see all of the Old Testament things and the connections that are being made with Jesus. That this is the continuation of what God has been doing throughout history with his people. 
But then also John himself comes as Elijah, as the forerunner for Jesus. We are being prepared by John himself in his preaching, in who he is, in his prophetic word that he brings from God. John is associated with Elijah, as I already mentioned, but in multiple different ways. We see how there's the wilderness thing. Elijah was in the wilderness. John is in the wilderness. He's preaching and proclaiming in the wilderness repentance. Repent. He's got the same garb as prophets, as Elijah did. He's got the the camel's hair, clothed with camel's hair and a leather belt, and his food. He ate locusts and wild honey. All of this stuff is giving us indications, even if we do not fully understand what all of this means. And there's a lot to be dug out and, and, and figured out when it comes to what are all these representations and images. Certainly, all of the people that Mark was writing to didn't fully grasp and understand. But what we do need to understand is that John is Elijah. This is uh, affirmed not till later in Mark's gospel, where Jesus pretty clearly states that Elijah has come and he was arrested and put to death, clearly associating him, I think, with, with John and his ministry. What this shows us is, with the Old Testament prophecy, with John coming along as Elijah, as the forerunner, we can't afford to be just people of the New Testament. We are New Testament believers. We are living in the New Testament era. We're living between the time of Jesus' first incarnation and his second coming. We are are New Testament believers. We are a New Testament church. And yet we cannot scrap the Old Testament. We can't get rid of it. Because the Old Testament gives us the understanding of who Jesus is and what he's actually doing. There's so much in there that we could actually dig out that we don't have time to, but there's so much in here we could dig out and try to see and understand and appreciate more. Just one example. The wilderness thing is going to be pretty big. Just like in the Old Testament, how Israel was delivered from the wilderness, out of the wilderness, after 40 years in the desert by going into the Jordan River, so too we see here that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem, they were going out to John. They were being delivered in the wilderness from their sin by entering into the Jordan, by repenting, by receiving the baptism from John. They were repenting in the wilderness in the same way that Israel repented. Israel was not perfect. These people are not perfect. And yet the the imagery is there. We see all of these things and there's much more to pick out. John preached in the wilderness, just as Elijah preached in the wilderness, just as Moses preached in the wilderness. The wilderness symbolized repentance. It symbolized the place where, of God's judgment. That's where God sent his people, um, Israel, when when they disobeyed, when they didn't follow through with with what he had commanded them. They were sent to the wilderness, and they cried out in the wilderness for his help. And what did God do? He heard them, and God brought salvation to his people in the wilderness. The wilderness is a, a really important Um, theme and image that we don't have time right now to unpack all of it, but it's very, very important to see that what John does, preaching in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance, repent of your sins, repentance being a, a changing of mind. And in the Old Testament, not just a changing of mind, but a changing of mind that leads to action, that leads to acting differently than you did before. And in this case, repent of your sins, Stop acting in rebellion against God. Be prepared for God in the flesh to come and be prepared to accept and understand and see who he is.
be ready for Jesus. Then we get to John's message in a nutshell. Um, He basically says the Lord is coming. Look at verse 7. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He's talking about the the massive difference between what John is doing as a prophet of the Lord and the one who is coming. Not just a prophet that's greater, because as we see in verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The connection we need to see is is that who can actually bestow his spirit upon other people? Who can baptize with the spirit, with the Holy Spirit? Well, that's God himself and God alone. Only God has the right and the authority to baptize with his spirit. John does not have that authority. John does not have that power. Therefore, the one who is coming, who is going to baptize by the Holy Spirit, is going to be God himself. The one who is coming is both the Christ, the Messiah, and the Lord. He's the long-awaited anointed one, and he is God himself coming to bestow his spirit upon his people. That's the preparation for Jesus. Then we get right to the next connection, which is in verse 9. The connection between what God has been preparing his people for in the Old Testament and what John is preparing the people in the wilderness for is Jesus himself. Verse 9 says, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus is the next person that he mentions. The connection is Jesus is the one we're actually talking about here. Mark made that connection back in verse 1, that this is all about Jesus. John connects that. Mark connects that through the ministry of John, that Jesus shows up right away. Jesus shows up in the very next verse. He came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verses 9 through 14, I gave the title, the proofing of Jesus. And what I mean by that is that the validation that Jesus is the one, proving that Jesus is the one that we are talking about here, proving that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. That's what we are, he's the one that we are waiting for. We see that happen in two different ways, in verses 9 through 11 and then verses 12 through 13. Two different um, aspects, different uh processes by which Jesus is proven. He's validated to be the one that we are waiting for. He's immediately shown to be the one that John is talking about. And in verses 9 through 11, we see that Jesus is validated by divine revelation, by God himself speaking. And when he came up out of the water, this is verse 10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well-pleased. see a couple of things going on here with the baptism. Jesus, he's willing to and wanting to identify with sinners in his baptism. Did Jesus need the baptism of repentance? In one sense, no, because he had no sins to repent of. He did not need this baptism because he himself was a sinner, because he himself was needing forgiveness, because he himself was needing something from God. But Jesus, taking on the baptism of repentance, identifies with you and me. He identifies with his people in this baptism. He takes on himself the baptism, signifying that he is ready to take on the punishment from the judgment of God. Jesus takes on the baptism. And what we see after the baptism, when he came up out of the water, immediately... It's one of Mark's favorite words, as we'll see as we work through immediately. Next, right away, what we see is he saw the heavens being torn open. Some translations will say heavens being opened up. And while that that isn't wrong, it doesn't have the quite force that we'd like to see. The heavens were being torn open. 
It didn't just open. God himself tore the heavens open. In much the same way, another connection with the end of the, the gospel account is the, um, the curtain in the temple being torn in two from top to bottom. As the heavens are being torn apart, we see that at the end, the, 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 um, the curtain being torn apart and access, direct access to God now being accessible because of what Jesus has done on the cross being torn open. The heavens being torn open actually signify the long-awaited return of God's Spirit. It shows God's power and God's presence in His Spirit coming down to His people. The heavens had been shut up for a, a number of centuries. They hadn't heard from God. They hadn't heard from a prophet. Partly what made John so special, hearing from God through the prophetic word. Now what we are being told is the heavens are being torn open and God Himself is coming. The Spirit was descending onto Jesus from heaven, and not just onto Jesus, um, but also into him. There's, there's, a, there's a, a different way of understanding in terms of it's not just coding him. It's not just going over top of Jesus. It's actually the Spirit is descending onto him, into him, into his being, into who he is. It's filling, the Spirit is coming and filling and equipping Jesus for ministry. Filling and equipping Jesus for a special special service. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Christ, that's what Messiah means. Anointed um, for a specific purpose, by God, for special service. And what we see here is the anointing of God the Father to God the Son, through God the Spirit, bestowing on him the Spirit himself, signifying, showing us, indicating that he is ready for unique service. As I mentioned, Jesus in his baptism identifies with sinners, but it also, in his baptism, confirms his sonship. You are my son, my beloved son. The Father is confirming that this is the one whom I've sent. With you I am well pleased. It confirms his sonship and confirms his servanthood. That phrase, with you I am well pleased, is language of a master to a servant. Is language in the Old Testament of servanthood, the, the servant of God coming. And who is God pleased with? His servant, who has come to do his will. That is Jesus. Jesus has come to do the will of the Father. So we see that God himself validates who Jesus is through his word, through his divine um, expression of his voice. Excuse me. And what we see in verses 12 through 13, Jesus is validated not just um, by God himself through his divine voice, although that is enough. What we see is Jesus is validated through experience, through divine testing. We are told in verse 12 that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. This is, this is divinely appointed. It's not an accident that Jesus found himself in the wilderness. Again, another important uh, piece, imagery that we need to understand. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. <coughs> Excuse me. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus goes out where Israel had been, out into the wilderness. Forty days, also symbolizing and helping us understand that 40 being an important number in the Old Testament. It's something we should be aware of and something we need to dive into more to figure out. But what we're going to see is, is where Israel failed in the desert, in the wilderness. 
Jesus will not. Jesus will succeed. The testing of Jesus was divinely orchestrated. Spirit drives him out, drives him into the wilderness, and the wilderness is the proving grounds of the Old Testament. Are you going to put your money where your mouth is? Are you going to prove that what you say you believe, what you claim to be true, will this be put to the test? Jesus will succeed where Israel fails. The adversary, that's what Satan means. Jesus was tempted by Satan, by the adversary, the great adversary. The adversary wants to subvert God's reign. We want to see how, we, we are going to see how Satan, he wants to destroy everything that Jesus comes to make right. He wants to destroy God's work. He wants to destroy God's kingdom. That's what he tried to do, and that's what, in some sense, in some capacity, he succeeded in doing in Genesis 3. The kingdom that God had established in the Garden of Eden with the royalty of Adam and Eve, Satan, Satan destroyed by leading away, by tempting Adam and Eve away from God and his rule and reign. And that has been Satan's long-standing goal to destroy God's work. But what we will see, and immediately so, in verse 21, we're not going to get to that this week, but what we'll see in verse 21 is that immediately, right away, right off the bat, even though right here in verses uh, 12 through 13, we're not told that Jesus actually wins. We're not given the details that Matthew gives. But what we are shown in verse 21 and following, verses 21 through 28, is that Jesus is going to destroy the devil's work. The adversary comes to destroy God's work. He wants to destroy Jesus and his work. And what we're going to see is that over and over and over again in Mark's account, that he will cast out unclean spirits. He will cast away demons. He will heal people with unclean spirits. That Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, he comes and he cannot be bested by the adversary. He cannot be bested by Satan. He stands anointed for a special service, and his work will destroy Satan's work. Satan cannot stand. We will see that over and over again until ultimately we get to the end, and we see that on the cross, Jesus destroys the work of Satan once and for all, that the power that Satan used to hold, that he thought he still holds now, it is now all stripped away because of what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus will not fail. He will destroy the devil's work. He will stand for what is right, and he will stand in the wilderness with you and with me because he has been there. He has been there. He has done that. He has gone through it. And so when you and I stand in the wilderness and you and I face temptation, we can lean heavily on the arms of Jesus because he has been there. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to be among the wild animals. And there's some controversy, not controversy, discussion going back and forth. What is this wild animal stuff? Are they nice wild animals? Is, is it some eschatological picture that we see where the wild animals are actually gathering around Jesus and it's a picture of the triumph that Jesus has over Satan? Or is it given in the sense where Jesus is with the wild animals, he's amongst the wild animals and they're actually hostile, but he is not alone. The angels are ministering to him. He stands in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of danger and he stands and does not fail and what you and I can take from this is that as you and I stand in amongst the wild animals in the wilderness of temptation we can lean on Jesus so we've seen how God himself prepares through the prophetic word of both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophet of John 
God has prepared us for Jesus. We have been proved, proofed of Jesus being the one that this is all about, that it's all about Jesus from God's mouth himself and from Jesus' example of standing in the face of adversity. Then, number three, we come to uh, verses 14 and 15, and we see the preaching of Jesus. We see the message that Jesus has come to speak, what he's come to communicate to you and to me. In verse 14, we see, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That is, the gospel is proclaimed in adversity, in suffering. The way has been prepared for Jesus, and yet it's not an easy road. Jesus has just gone through temptation. He's just gone through a testing period in the wilderness. He's succeeded. He's come out on the other side. He has not given in to the adversary. But John himself is now arrested. Things are not going to go perfectly smoothly for the Son of God in terms of our human understanding of what would be perfect, what would be a smooth transition into Jesus' ministry. John is arrested. Jesus is tempted. He's tested, followed by John's arrest, and the gospel message still goes out. The gospel is preached in the midst of adversity, preached in the midst of suffering, preached in the midst of troubled times, dark times, tumultuous times. Then in verse 15, we see the good news is that the kingdom of God is here because Jesus is here. Verse 15 says, In saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. How is it at hand? It's at hand because Jesus is at hand, because Jesus is here, because the kingdom has come in personal form. It's not just some overarching idea or thought or realm. The kingdom of God is Jesus personally here. God's kingdom has invaded humanity. It's at hand because Jesus is at hand, because Jesus is here. And his appearance, his showing up on the scene, taking into account everything that we have been told about who Jesus is up until this point, his appearance demands a reaction. It demands a change of thinking. It demands repentance and belief. It's an obligation. Jesus' message is not take it or leave it. It's not if you think this is a good idea or if you've got nothing better to do. The message is, repent and believe in this good news. Not whatever you might think is good news, because this is the only good news you need to hear. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come in the flesh, bringing the kingdom of God in personal format, and he is restoring humanity to himself. He is destroying the work that Satan did. He is destroying Satan's destruction. And what we will see as we work through the Gospel of Mark, we will see specific iterations of that, specific examples of how that's going to look, how Jesus is dismantling in his ministry the work of Satan. But we will see as we get to the end, ultimately, how that work is culminated, fulfilled in the cross work of Jesus. That We need to repent of our old ways of thinking, and we need to believe. There is lots to be discovered about the Old Testament stuff in here. There's lots to be discovered about the wilderness. There's lots to be discovered about the Spirit. The Spirit's mentioned three times in here. and The Spirit is often, not often, sometimes um, uh, mistakenly overlooked in terms of importance and significance in, in the Gospels and in the New Testament and the Old Testament for that matter. 
there's lots to be discerned and discovered about the Spirit. There's lots to be discovered about baptism and its significance. There's lots to be discovered about Elijah and that motif that Elijah is the forerunner. There's lots to be discovered about the Messiah, the Christ, the anointing. What does that mean? What is, what is it talking about in the Old Testament and how does Jesus fulfill that? There's lots to be discovered about the kingdom, about the kingdom of God and what that means that his rule and reign is set up now in Jesus Christ. But for now... What is our response? What is our response, even as it would take weeks and months maybe to dive into all of those things? What is our response right now? What is our response to what we have just heard from Mark speaking to us about the Son of God, Jesus Christ? Our first response needs to be this, repent and believe. We need to do that first and foremost if we have not done that to begin with. That is to say, If you are not saved, if you have not repented of your sins before Jesus Christ, if you have not fallen on your knees before the cross, and you have not repented of your old way, your old self, your old man, if you have not given up and changed who you are because of what Jesus has done, if you have not repented of your sin and believed in him, you need to do that right now. For those of us who walk with Jesus, that's what we did. We gave up our past, we gave up our old way of thinking, and we changed our way of thinking from ourself to Jesus. We need to repent and believe. We need to repent of the times we sin even now as redeemed believers, as redeemed children. We still fall, we still stumble, we still sin, and we need to repent of those things because he is willing and ready to forgive. He is willing and ready to not not overlook, not to sweep under the rug, But he's willing to forgive because he has already paid for those sins on the cross. We need to repent of the wrong ways of thinking, the wrong ways of reacting. We need to repent of putting our Messiah, um, setting up our Messiah as somebody else other than Jesus. Whether it's ourself, we want to think that we are our own Savior. We want to think that um, somebody else is going to sweep in and save us, whether it's a government official or whether it's the next pastor of the church or whoever it is. No, 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 no. Our Redeemer, our Messiah... The one who has saved us is Jesus and Jesus alone. Repent and believe in him. Second thing we need to take out of this, I think, is we need to proclaim who Jesus is. Mark went to great lengths to hear from Peter and to write down and to read to other people who Jesus was because this was the most important message Mark could ever communicate to anybody. And it's the most important message you and I will ever have for people to see and understand who Jesus is, that Jesus is the answer that we are not. That Jesus is the answer, not the government officials. That Jesus is the answer to the longing in my heart, not my spouse, not the next relationship, not the next toy, not the next thing on the internet. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about Jesus. That's the message we need to proclaim. That Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God has come. And you, dear friends, need to repent and believe. We need to proclaim Jesus for who he is and what he's done. And lastly... Our response should be, first, repent and believe. Second, proclaim the the message of repentance and belief in him. And thirdly, we need to recognize and understand, and I, I mentioned this already, we need to remember and know that the Lord is with us in the wilderness. The angels were ministering to Jesus while he was in the wilderness. And we know that Jesus through the power of his spirit, is with us wherever we are, wherever we go, that right now, whatever wilderness you may be experiencing, and we could probably um, expand that too far, but I don't think we should just so narrowly make it 
um, just out in the desert because there is so much to be understood about what the wilderness represents in the scriptures. It's a time of testing, a time of trial, a, tri a time of tribulation. It's a time where we do not feel close to God. It is a time where we feel like all hell is breaking loose. And it, it is a time where we feel like we are just standing so alone out in the middle of nowhere with nobody close to us to help us. And we need to remember that right now in whatever wilderness we experience that God stands with you. Dear brother or sister in Christ, God is with you in the wilderness. And he is not just with you in the sense of he's watching you. He is giving you strength. He is giving you endurance because he has been through this. Jesus has gone through this. Jesus has come through on the other side and he stands with you, walking with you in the wilderness. That is the message I think most of us need to hear, that we are not alone, that we don't stand isolated, even though we feel so desperately isolated during these times, that Jesus Christ stands with you in the wilderness. He has been there. He defeated the adversary in the desert. He defeated the adversary on the cross. And he will walk with you through whatever adversity you face in the future. May God help us to understand and see Jesus more fully. May God help us to see and appreciate what Jesus has done more completely. And may God help us to worship and adore Jesus in a more God-honoring way. May the Lord bless you this week.